In 1846, St. John Henry Newman wrote the following um, famous or perhaps notorious words. I am doubting whether the Dominicans have preserved their traditions, whether it's, it is not a great idea extinct. We could apply this quote, which by the way demonstrates clearly that a saint is not infallible, uh, to the Thomist tradition and ask ourselves, isn't the Thomist tradition a great idea extinct? And if not, what is it? And it is indeed somewhat remarkable that as far as I was able to find out, this 11th International Thomistic Congress is the first which explicitly addresses the Thomist tradition. And rightly so, because these last few decades have seen an astonishing revival of interest. At first, one might settle for a simple explanation. Just as with the invention of the printing press, there occurred a vast increase in editions and commentaries, something similar is happening with the ongoing digital digitalization of the works of the Thomist tradition. Once confined to the rare books collections or the basement of the library, these works are now becoming ever more easy to access. And as a result, new editions, translations, and commentaries are being published. But why would someone be interested at all in these Thomistic commentators? Two elements are of importance here. First, the application of the historical method to the study of Aquinas has undoubtedly brought about a significant enrichment of our knowledge of Aquinas' life, works, and thought, and its historical context. But this method has, although, it not, in, although not inherently, a number of risks attached to it. It can, first of all, lead to historicizing and relativizing Aquinas' thought so that the truth contained within it is thought, within his thought, is either ignored or reduced to its genealogy. One should hold, apart from the genetic fallacy present in such an argument, that such a historicization is entirely untomistic because it completely mischaracterizes the philosophical and theological project of Aquinas. A second risk might be called Thomasian purism, which refers to the view that a letter and only the letter of the critically, critically established text displays the thought of Aquinas. As such, this view makes impossible any systematic engagement with, with Aquinas, and in the attempt to stay true to the letter of the text, it paradoxically mischaracterizes Aquinas' project insofar as it is directed towards an understanding of the real. Second, these extreme derivations from a legitimate historical approach often defend, albeit implicitly, the corruption thesis, which has perhaps most strongly and consistently been defended by Etienne Gilson. Now, without going into the details, of course, of, of his position, this thesis holds that Aquinas' thought can only have a contemporary relevance if one separates it, his thought from the perversions of the commentatorial tradition and return to the authentic, the pure doctrine of Aquinas. And a similar reasoning, one can say, has been put forward in order to separate sharply the doctrine of Aquinas from the manualist tradition. It has been argued, and correctly so, that this line of reasoning is inherently paradoxical. On the one hand, the plurality of sources from which St. Thomas's thought originated is emphasized as necessary to understand St. Thomas and the development of his thought. But on the other hand, his, this process is forced to a standstill at the death of St. Thomas. This line of reasoning is also in conflict with St. Thomas's own insights into the nature of education insofar as for St. Thomas the intellectual life necessarily and therefore also deliberately takes place within a social context. And this necessity of collaboration 
not only with the present but also with the past, reflects the human condition insofar as any act of understanding depends on a previous act of, of trust or belief in what has been handed down. And here I might quote uh, Henri Dominique Lacordaire, C'est une loi que l'intelligence humaine et même toute intelligence créée doit se former par un enseignement reçu avec respect d'une intelligence supérieure. Nul n'est à lui-même son principe et son initiation. But this brings up the question of what is it, what is it exactly that has been handed down? Are there some necessary defining features of the Thomist tradition, or even more pertinent, what is a Thomist? From what has been said so far, I think it is obvious that one should avoid a clearly minimalistic approach in which reading and studying his work suffices to be a Thomist, or an approach in which the mere inspiration by Aquinas suffices. Such an approach does not seem to go beyond the state of mind for Mamentis, and at least implicitly rejects the project of St. Thomas, who considered himself to be a master, a teacher. But more importantly, this project the project itself does not lend itself to such a minimalistic approach insofar as his project, and any philosophical and theological project for that matter, is in, in, in its nature directed at a coherent and perennially valid set of truths or doctrine. So, uh, the, question, the question, what is a Thomist, has become all the more urgent insofar as one can clearly detect in recent years an inflationary use of the term Thomism, preceded by an adjective which can result in creating the impression that in fact there exists an almost in infinite variety of types of Thomism. Speaking about types of Thomism is justified insofar as the material object is, is uh, insofar as the material object is, is not enough to assure the unity of Thomism and insofar as different aspects under which his writings can be studied are possible, at the same time, it's obvious that the infl inflationary use of the term displays a nominalist tendency which have led some to reject any definition of Thomism as at random and an ultimately futile endeavor. So in the following three parts, I will first look at some defining features of Thomism from the Thomist tradition. Next, I will zoom in on the contribution of John of St. Thomas. And finally, in part three, I will present some features of a specifically Dominican imprint of the Thomist tradition. So, one way to answer our question is to look at some defining features within the history of Thomism. A first such feature is the fact that from its earliest recommendations by the order of preachers in 1278, Thomism has continu continually been on the defense, and that's uh, exactly the point that Professor Porro has made also. While it, while it is correct to say that by the end of the 13th century there wasn't a Thomistic school in the sense of a body of people adhering to a certain set of principles, doctrines, and methods or authorities, the order did aim at a level of uniformity in teaching and, and intellectual cohesion among the brethren. While some have claimed that the recommendations are too vague in order to speak of a Thomist school, it remains the case that the recommendations are doctrinal in nature, as the frequent use of, the, of doctrina attests but also that there existed at least the claim of knowing what the common doctrine of St. Thomas was. For instance, when John of Naples drew up a list of 255 censured, censured propositions in 1317 from the writings of the Randus of St. Poursin, he also indicates where the opposite proposition in St. Thomas's writings can be found, often introduced by contra Thomam. 
Perhaps the clearest indication of the doctrinal nature of the recommendations, even before the canonization, is the fact that in 1313, the general chapter ordered that a three-year careful study of the doctrine of Friar Thomas was required in order to be able to send to Paris for further studies. For the, furthermore, one should be careful not to impose anachronistically later requirements on those early years of Thomism, for it's unreasonable to expect a clear-cut set of principles and doctrines to be attributed to Thomism at this early stage. While the canonization in 1323 forms a decisive step for the identity of Thomism, as has been argued by uh, Professor Porro in his writings also, Already well before that time, a Thomist identity has been formed, not at least as an effect of the correctorium literature and the Dominican responses to it, which caused a certain esprit de corps to arise. And this identity possessed a, do a doctrinal character, as is indeed evident from the discussions surrounding the doctrine of the unis unicity of the sub substantial form. One can find indications of this defensive strategy in a new type of commentary of which the later so-called Defensiones by Caprilis is a prime example, which centered on the strict exegesis of St. Thomas's text over and against contrary positions. But the goal of not only preserving and spreading St. Thomas's doctrine, but also to defend it from critics and detractors, is already clearly visible in William Peter of Godino's Lectura Thomasina from around 1300, so that the editor of the critical edition, which is now on the way, refers to him as a forerunner of Caprilis. Or in the Molinism controversy, which was sparked in part by Molina's own admission that he wanted to break with the Thomist doctrines by proposing a novel theory. In more recent times, there is the restoration of Thomistic philosophy against modern rational rationalism, as exemplified by the encyclical Eterni Patris. But also the historical approach of the 20th century partly director, directed against an uncritical synthesis of St. Thomas's thought and some aspects of modernity. So this feature of Thomism reflects the willingness to critically engage with the questions that arise in a certain period in history, but at the same time the willingness to hold on to the strongly held conviction that Thomism contains within itself both the principles upon which a response to these questions can be formulated as well as an intellectually constructive and cohesive alternative which is able to transcend the times in which these questions are formulated. Uh, a second feature um, is the search for a doctrinal essence of Thomism. One way in which this, this search has been facilitated from very early on in the Thomist tradition consists in the production of abbreviationes. These tools, conceived as facilitating the access to and memorization of St. Thomas's writings, also implicitly or explicitly had the effect of drawing out from the enormous volume of his writings their central insights and argumentations. Martin Grabman, who has studied these abbreviations extensively, draws attention to a very early example by Johannes Dominici of Montpellier, who composed abbreviationes to the Summa Theologiae at the request, uh, at the request of the then uh, Pope John XXII. In his prologue, Johannes Dominici writes that, given the fact that without the salt of the sacred science contained in the Summa, all theological explorations become tasteless, he aims at composing a compendium which will make the central conclusions more accessible and easier to memorize. And in the explicit to the tertia pars, 
once he once again shows his uh, intention, that is to say, to, to collect the dicta principia, which can serve as inconcusa principia for the treatment of the matter at hand. Um, this search for an identifiable doctrinal essence of Thomism culminates, so to speak, in two uh, classics of 20th century uh, Thomism, Norberto del Prado's De Veritate Fundamentali Totius Philosophiae Christiane and Gallus Manser Das Wesen des Thomismus. The essence of Thomism, whether it is located in the distinction between act and potency as Manser thought, or in the distinction between essence and being as del Prado thought, becomes the cornerstone of a philosophical and theological system which is seen as the logical application and development of the doctrinal core. It's worthwhile to recall here that it's uh, Father Garigou Lagrange who on several occasions harmonizes these two approaches, emphasizing the unity of the via inventionis and the via judici, since both have as their terminus and, princi and principium what he calls the supreme truth, truth of Christian philosophy, the clavis aurea totius edifici of the angelic doctor, namely Deus est ipsum sum subsistens. While I would agree with those who have argued that the reduction of the essence of Thomism runs the risk of decontextualizing and simplifying the complex whole that is both St. Thomas's writing as well as the history of the Thomist tradition, I think it remains necessary to point out uh, uh, the following. Um, the explanatory power of reasoning in terms of a principle which unfolds itself logically manifestly exists. Here one can think of the way in which uh, Del Prado arrives at, at, an, uh, at the intelligibility of the mystery of Eucharistic conversion and the existence of Eucharistic accidents on the basis of the real distinction between being and essence. Uh, in creatures versus the real identity of them in God. Second, the expl explanatory power is the reflection and result of man's natural capa capability for perennial metaphysical truths, without which the project of theology becomes impossible. Third, the project of Manser, Del Prado, and others also reminds us, perhaps paradoxically, that while the historical and systematical pers pers perspective should indeed go together, the primacy belongs to the systematical perspective. Indeed, the historical perspective presupposes both the capability and the actuality of attaining metaphysical truths. Fourth and finally, any possible development of St. Thomas's thought depends on the existence and understanding of the nature of doctrinal principles. Or in the words of Father Garigou Lagrange, La puissance d'assimilation contenue dans une doctrine philosophique et théologique montre la valeur, l'élévation et l'universalité de ces principes. De ce point de vue, le thomisme peut s'assimiler ce qu'il a de vrai dans les différentes, différentes tendances. Um, so I come now to my second part, the, uh, the five marks of a thomist according to John of St. Thomas. So, I skipped uh, over almost 500 years of history, so let us return to the 17th century and to John of St. Thomas. Uh, and as we will see, John will bring into the discussion an element that in my view has so far been overlooked. Now, uh, he prefaces his much acclaimed Cursus Theologicus with a, treata with a treatise uh, intended to investigate the nature and extent of the approbation and authority conferred to St. Thomas's doctrine. 
In the opening lines of the treatise, he quotes Pope Urban V's uh, wish that one should follow the doctrine of St. Thomas as the, as the true and Catholic doctrine and endeavor to spread it with all its power. This passage, passage John writes, contains two conditions which are cons constitutive of a true disciple of St. Thomas. That is to say, to follow eagerly his doctrine as the true and Catholic doctrine, and two, to spread his doctrine with all one's powers. But these conditions, he continues, do not require that a disciple of St. Thomas understands his doctrine entirely, nor that he cannot depart from his doctrine whatsoever. The reason this is so is that one is a disciple precisely in order to learn and acquire a true understanding of his doctrine. In this sense, being a Thomist is an end one tries to achieve. One does not cease to be a true Thomist if one does not in everything arrive at the mind of St. Thomas, especially given the weakness of one's mind and the profundity of his teaching. On the contrary, the self-professing Thomist needs to follow and spread Aquinas' doctrine. So John emphasizes the virtue of intellectual and spiritual humility insofar as every Thomist is in a certain sense an aspiring Thomist, who by God's grace is being able to make progress in understanding St. Thomas. But Pope Urban V's description needs to be more specific because it's not enough for being a Thomist to merely claim one understands and develops his doctrine better than others do because others will claim they are doing the same. So how is one therefore able to judge who is the true follower of St. Thomas? In particular, when in many instances his doctrine is susceptible of various readings or when some passages fail to appear entirely intelligible. So, for this reason, John will, in the remainder of his treatise, propose five marks. Uh, um, I'll br briefly discuss these four, five marks. Uh, so, the first mark. When the mind of St. Thomas is not immediately clear, a true disciple of St. Thomas will adhere to those who, over time, have been his disciples. The continued succession of an interpretation has the greatest prob probative force. Um, John opposes uh, these true Thomists against those who attack or try to improve these uh, commentators and brag about inventing a new understanding of his doctrine. In other words, one cannot call in oneself a Thomist and at the same time militate against those who over time have been considered his legitimate dis disciples. Interestingly, John compares this approach to the correct understanding of scripture. Um, and he argues that a similar approach is needed to understand scripture correct, correctly. That is to say, one's understanding of scripture must be shown to stand in a continued succession with the tradition of the faith and with the church as founded by the apostles. John is, of course, aware that there have been Thomists who strayed from St. Thomas's doctrine. A distinction needs to be made, however, between those who attack and contradict St. Thomas and therefore were not his disciples, and those who in trying to follow his doctrine came up with novel interpretations when St. Thomas's own thought was entire, wasn't entirely clear or, or his thought had not yet been made clear. Um, this basic attitude towards the Thomist tradition leads John to a second mark of a true Thomist. He should work to defend and clarify his doctrine and, and not to find excuses to deviate from it. A true Thomist possesses a genuine affectus for St. Thomas's doc doctrine and works to, to defend it, even if, because of the limits of his understanding and the difficulties of the matter, he does not always grasp the meaning of a certain teaching and even if he sometimes deviates from it as a consequence. 
when this affectus weakens, one is less inclined to carefully try to understand what St. Thomas says, and he instead seeks, to excuse, seeks excuses to deviate from him. Um, and again, John illustrates, il illustrates this point with a long quote from St. Augustine, where Augustine argues that the correct understanding of sacred scripture presupposes a genuine love for them. The third mark of a true Thomist can be seen as an application of this affectus. In exposing the mind of St. Thomas, John writes, a true Thomist seeks not his own opinion nor an opinion with, which gains him applause from his colleagues. John approvingly quotes the following passage from Bernard of Clairvaux's uh, Sermon 13 on the Song of Songs. You are indeed a faithful servant if you do not try to grasp for yourself for yourself the manifold glory of God, which, while not coming from you, nevertheless passes through you. This occurs when, in accord with the Lord's command, your light shines before men, not for your own glory, but for that of your Father in heaven." End quote. So someone who approaches St. Thomas in this way is, care is careless and superficial and conveniently uses St. Thomas to put forward his own ideas. On the basis of these three marks, it follows as a fourth mark that a true and sincere disciple of St. Thomas cannot content himself with repeating his conclusions while at the same time rejecting his arguments. Rather, he should explicate the arguments and if there, appears to be, if there appear to be contrary positions within St. Thomas's writings, try to harmonize them. Besides a careful study of the arguments and a search for harmony, one should also look for St. Thomas's position in those passages where he clearly and explicitly treats a topic and not in secondary or obscure passages. In merely accepting his conclusions but not his arguments, one renders his, his thought without foundation. Sine ratione autem non est scientia nec doctrina. Such an approach, moreover, shows that St. Thomas is not the master who provides valid arguments. Moreover, by not taking into account his arguments, one cuts the legs from under his positions and renders them ineffective, which is ultimately contrary to Pope Urban V's wish to spread St. Thomas's doctrine. The fifth and final mark of a true disciple of St. Thomas reads as follows, maior unitas et concordia in sequenda via et doctrina divetome. John admits that there has always been, uh, there has always been Thomists uh, among Thomists, uh, discord and divisions, which makes it difficult to discern who is a true follower of St. Thomas. As such, this is part of reality because in that, which is, in that which is corruptible, one will never find unity and concord without divisions. The fifth mark, therefore, does not entail a perfect and absolute unity, but the effort to promote and conserve it. Again, he, quote, he quotes from uh, Tertullian, uh, Quote, when, however, that which is deposited among many is found to be one and the same, it is not the result of error, but of tradition. End quote. Unity and concordance in explaining and following St. Thomas's doctrine leads to an increase of his authority, whereas division only leads to the opposite. So this entire approach, I would call this entire approach to the question, what is a Thomist, the moral or psychological, in the Thomist sense of the word, approach, because John's emphasis lies on the intellectual and moral virtues required of a Thomist. Humility, honesty, affectus for St. Thomas, and love for the truth 
combined with a sense of realism regarding the human condition. This approach is complementary to uh, the doctrinal approach, focusing on a set of principles, and the methodological approach, focusing on the forma mentis of St. Thomas. So John, John's approach recognizes the importance for the intellectual life of belonging to a tradition in which one is being introduced by others and in which one enters with a presumptive confidence in the truth of St. Thomas's thought and the deference towards St. Thomas as a master. Only when one continues, continuously fosters and cultivates these virtues can one place one's intellect at the service of the truth. So the final part, the Dominican imprint of the Thomist tradition. So all this leads to a final question I would like to raise, namely, where does one find the tradition which unites the doctrinal, methodological, and moral approaches? That is to say, a tradition which, out of an intellectual and effective devotion for St. Thomas, continuously commits itself to a return to St. Thomas in the exploration of the truth, and in doing so confers a living presentialitas to St. Thomas's thought. Here we should draw attention to the institutional context of the Thomist tradition, that is to say the sociological mediation of the intellectual life of those who take St. Thomas as their, as their master. It goes without saying, and would even be an understatement, to say that the order of preachers holds a unique and primary place within this tradition. Nevertheless, it's worthwhile to briefly revisit the reasons St. Thomas and his Dominican commentators lay claim to a continuity that dates back to before his canonization and has continued uninterruptedly, albeit with the complexities that arise in each period of history, until today. Moreover, the intellectual formation within the order, closely linked to St. Thomas's writings, and in particular the Summa Theologiae, confirms the presumptive confidence in the truth of St. Thomas's thought and the deference towards St. Thomas as master and lays the groundwork for a living tradition of Thomism. But what is more significant and important in my view is the following. Every time the order sought a renewal or revitalization of his intellectual life, necessitated by historical and cultural circumstances, it consciously sought a return to St. Thomas. This claim needs to be spelled out more in detail, of course, and, um, but I would just like to draw attention to three examples. First, the renaissance of Thomism in the 15th century in Italy in particular, and the gradual move from the sentences to the Summa towards the end of the 15th century in Paris and Cologne, of which Kedgeton's summary is the most, uh, commentary is the most famous is connected to the observant reform of the order insofar as the reform, uh, according to Kedgeton, intended to strengthen the unity of the order. The more pronounced role of St. Thomas and the pedago pedagogical values of the Summa certainly contributed to this goal. In fact, Vincenzo Bandello, once he became Master General in 1501, insisted that the key to the renewal of the intellectual life of the order was the study of Aquinas. A second example can be seen in Master General John Thomas de Boxador, who in, an, who in an influential letter in 1757 urged for a renewed return to St. Thomas because, as he writes, the constant profession of Thomism belongs to the dignity of the order. For a third and final example, we turn to the 19th century and to, uh, again, to Henri Dominique Lacordaire, 
uh, of course, famous for restoring the order in, in France. Uh, in a letter from 1840 to the, to the then Master General, Lacordaire argues that it is not sufficient to know and practice the discipline of the order, but he also, but also, um, uh, that this, but he also argued that it is necessary to be initiated into the doctrine of Saint Thomas. For that doctrine, quote, est la sève qui, en coulant dans les veines de l'ordre, lui conserve sa puissante originalité. And he continues with these, perhaps even more provocative words. Qui ne l'a point étudié, so uh, Saint Thomas, qui ne l'a point étudié à fond peut être dominicain par le cœur, il ne l'a point par l'intelligence. Um, so, as I said, these are just three examples of, of something which needs to be spelled out in more detail. So, let me briefly conclude. In order to address the question of the title, I have argued for three principal claims. First, the Thomist tradition was, has, from its very beginnings, at least two defining features, a defensive strategy and a search for a doctrinal unity. Second, John of St. Thomas adds a complementary perspective to the doctrinal and methodological approach to the Thomist tradition, one which I've called the moral approach, and which centers around an effective unity with St. Thomas and consequently with the Thomist tradition. Third, the Thomist tradition has a specifically Dominican imprint, which is best evidenced by its re continued return to St. Thomas as necessary for the renewal of its intellectual life. Thank you.